Chapter Two of the Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. The Duke rose, and everybody followed his example. Jocaster chanted the formula of dismissal, then sat down to finish gnawing on the bone. The others filed out. Green walked in front of Zumi in order to warn her of any obstacles in her path and to take the brunt of any attempted assassination. As he did so he was seized by the ankle and tripped headlong. He did not fall hard because he was a quick man in spite of his six foot two and hundred ninety pounds. But he rose red-faced because of the loud laughter and from repressed anger at Alzo, who had again repeated the trick of grabbing Green's leg and upsetting him. He wanted to grab a spear from a nearby guard and spit also, but that would be the end of Green. And whereas up to now there had been many times when he would not particularly have cared if he left this planet via the death route, he could not now make a false move. Not when escape was so near. So he grinned sheepishly and again preceded the Duchess while the others followed her out. When they reached the bottom of the broad stone staircase that led to the upper floors of the castle, Zuni told Green that he was to go to the marketplace and buy tomorrow's food. As for her, she was going back to bed and sleep until noon. Inwardly Green groaned. How long could he keep up this pace? He was expected to stay up half the night with her, then attend to his official duties during the day. She slept enough to be refreshed by the time he visited her, but he never had a chance for any real rest. Even when he had his free hours in the afternoon, he had to go to his house in the pens, and there he had to stay awake and attend to all his familial duties. And Amra, his slave-wife, and her six children demanded much from him. They were even more tyrannical than the Duchess, if that were possible. How long, O oh Lord, how long? The situation was intolerable. Even if he'd not heard of the spaceship, he would have plotted to escape. Better a quick death while trying to get away than a slow, torturous one by exhaustion. He bowed goodbye to the Duke and Duchess, then followed the violet turban and yellow robes of Miron through the courtyard, through the thick stone walls, over the bridge of the broad moat and into the narrow winding streets of the city of Quetzal. Here the merchant captain got into his silver and jewel decorated rickshaw. The two long-legged men between its shaft, sailors and clansmen from Miron's vessel, the Bird of Fortune, began running through the crowd. The people made way for them as two other sailors preceded them, calling out Miron's name and cracking whips in the air. Green, after looking to make certain that nobody from the castle was around to see him, ran until he was even with the rickshaw. Miron halted it and asked what he wanted. "'Your pardon, your richness, but may a humble slave speak and not be reprimanded?' "'I presume it is no idle thought you have in mind,' said Miron, looking Green over, his one eye narrow in his fat folds. "'It has to do with money.' Ah, despite your foreign accent you speak with a pleasing voice. You are the golden trumpet of many rocks, my patron god. Speak. 
First, your richness must swear by many rocks that you will under no circumstance divulge my proposal. There is wealth in this for me? There is. Miron glanced at his clansmen, standing there patiently, apparently oblivious to what was going on. He had powers of life and death over them, but he didn't trust them. He said, Perhaps it would be better if I thought about this before making such a drastic oath. Could you meet me tonight at the hour of the wine glass at the House of Equality? And could you perhaps give me a slight hint of what you have in mind? The answer to both is yes. My proposal has to do with the dried fish that you carry as cargo to the Astorians. There is another thing, too, but I may not even hint at it until I have your oath. Very well, then. At the agreed hour. Fish, eh? I must be off. Time is money, you know. Get going, boys. Full sails. Green hailed a passing rickshaw and seated himself comfortably in it. As assistant major-domo he had plenty of money. Moreover, the duke and duchess would have been outraged if he had lowered their prestige by walking through the city's streets. His vehicle made good time, too, because everybody recognized his livery, the scarlet and white tricorn hat, and the white sleeveless shirt, with the duke's heraldric arms on its chest, red and green concentric circles pierced by a black arrow. The street led always downward, for the city had been built on the foothills of the mountains. It wandered here and there, and gave Green plenty of time to think. The trouble was, he thought, that if the two imprisoned men at Astoria were to die before he got to them, he'd still be lost. He had no idea of how to pilot or navigate a spaceship. He'd been a passenger on a freighter when it had unaccountably blown up, and he'd been forced to leave the dying vessel in one of those automatic castaway emergency shells. The capsule had got him down to the surface of this planet and was, as far as he knew, still up in the hills where he left it. After wandering for a week and almost starving to death, he'd been picked up by some peasants. They had turned him into the soldiers of a nearby garrison, thinking he must be a runaway slave on whom they'd collect a reward. Taken to the capital city of Quetzal, Green had almost been freed because there was no record of his being anybody's property. But his tallness, blondness, and inability to speak the local language had convinced his captors that he must have wandered down from some far northern country. Therefore, if he wasn't a slave, he should be. Presto, Changeo, he was. And he'd put in six months in a quarry and a year as a dock worker. Then the Duchess had chanced to see him on the streets as she rode by, and he'd been transferred to the castle. The streets were alive with the short, dark, stocky natives and the taller, lighter-complexioned slaves. The former wore their turbans of various colors, indicating their status and trade. The latter wore their three-cornered hats. Occasionally a priest in his high, conical hat, hexagonal spectacles, and goatee rode by. Wagons and rickshaws drawn by men or by big, powerful dogs went by. Merchants stood at the fronts of their shops and hawked their wares in loud voices. They sold cloth, nut, parchment, knives, swords, helmets, drugs, books, on magic, on religion, on travel. 
spices, perfumes, inks, rugs, highly sugared drinks, wine, beer, tonic, paintings, everything that went to make up their civilization. Butchers stood before open shops where dressed fowl, deer, and dogs hung. Dealers and birds pointed out the virtues of their many-colored and multi-songed pets. For the thousandth time Green wondered at this strange planet where the only large animals were men, dogs, grass cats, a small deer, and a very small equine. In fact, there was a paucity of any variety of animal life except for the surprisingly large number of birds. It was this scarcity of horses and oxen, he supposed, that helped perpetuate slavery. Man and dog had to provide most of the labor. No doubt there was an explanation for all this, but it must be buried so deep in this people's forgotten history that no one would ever know. Green, always curious, wished that he had time and means to explore, but he didn't. He might as well resign himself to keeping a whole skin and to getting out of this mess as fast as he could. There was enough to do merely to make his way through the narrow and crowded streets. He had to display his baton often to clear a path, though when he approached the harbor area he had less trouble because the streets were much wider. Here great wagons drawn by gangs of slaves carried huge loads to or from the ships. The thoroughfares had to be broad, else the people would have been crushed between wagon and house. Here also were the so-called pens where the dock slaves lived. Once the area had actually been an enclosure where men and women were locked up for the night, but the walls had been torn down and new houses built in the old duke's time. The closest earthly parallel Green could think of for these edifices was a housing project. Small cottages, all exactly alike, set in military columns. For a moment he considered stopping off to see Amra, then decided against it. She'd get him tied up in an argument or something, and he'd spend too much time trying to soothe her, time that should be spent at the marketplace. He hated scenes, whereas Amra was a born self-dramatist who reveled in them, almost wallowed, one might say. He averted his eyes from the pens and looked at the other side of the street, where the walls of the great warehouses towered. Workmen swarmed around them, and cranes operated by gangs pushing wheels like a ship's capstan raised or lowered big bundles. Here, he thought, was a business opportunity for him. Introduce the steam engine. It'd be the greatest thing that ever hit this planet. Wood-burning automobiles would replace the rickshaws. Cranes could be run by donkey engines. The ships themselves could have their wheels powered by steam. Or perhaps, he thought, rails could be laid across the Zordemur, and locomotives would make the ships obsolete. No, that wouldn't work. Iron rails cost too much, and the savages that roved over the grassy plains would tear them up and forge weapons from them. Besides, every time he suggested to the Duke a new and much more efficient method of doing something, he ran dead into the brick wall of tradition and custom. Nothing new could be accepted unless the gods accepted it. The gods' will was interpreted by the priests. 
the priests clutch the status quo as tightly as a hungry infant clutches its mother's breast or an old man clings to his property green could make a fight against the theocracy but he didn't feel it was worth while to become a martyr he heard a familiar voice behind him calling his name alan alan he hunched his shoulders like a turtle withdrawing his head and thought desperately for a moment of trying to ignore the voice but though a woman's it was powerful and penetrating and everybody around him had already turned to see its owner so he couldn't pretend he hadn't heard it alan you big blond no good hunk of man stop reluctantly green told his rickshaw boy to turn around the boy grinning did so like everybody else along the harbor front he knew amra and was familiar with her relations with green she held their one-year-old daughter in her arms cradled against her magnificent bosom behind her stood her other five children two sons by the duke her daughter by a visiting prince her son by a captain of a northern ship her daughter by a temple sculptor her rise and fall and slow rise again was told in the children around her the tableau embodied an outline of the structure of the planet's society End of chapter two